The most devastating place I've ever been is a small town in Poland, more specifically to Auschwitz-Birkenau, right near that small town. This coming Monday, which will be January 27th, marks the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. The Times of London, just today, printed excerpts from the diary of a woman who is now 90 years old. She was 15 when she was in Auschwitz. Her mother and father and siblings were murdered there. She is releasing the pages that she hid in holes in the wall and smuggled from camp to camp because she's troubled by the repeated tendency to deny or to forget. She describes being in the area where the trains were unloaded. I've been to that place. That place haunts me. I was there four years ago, and this woman's memory populates my memory now, makes me hold in mind that I could not possibly know the terror that was felt in that place. Her diary says that she heard one little girl ask what the smell was in the air. The answer from one of the guards, we are burning your parents right now. This episode of Rector's Cupboard will consider a hard topic. We're going to interview Tim Fredheim, who is chaplain at Colony Farms Psychiatric Institute near Vancouver. This is a place where people who are deemed not criminally responsible due to psychiatric condition are sent. Some of the people there have committed terrible, terrible crimes. They may be among the people that our society still deems as monsters. We have this continued tendency to dehumanize one another. I want to read for you a passage from a book that enlightened me about what dehumanization looks like and how its opposite is possible. The book is called An Interrupted Life and Letters from Westerbork. It's another collection of diary entries from World War II, in this case from a woman named Eddie Hillesom, who was murdered at Auschwitz when she was 29 years old. It's an amazing book. Hillesom writes so beautifully, and as the book progresses, she seems to grow deeper and deeper in the life of the spirit, more closely connected to humanity. At one point, when she knows that she will be killed, she speaks about feeling sorry for her captors and even her killers. They are the ones who are dehumanized by hatred and darkness. She is not. It's astounding. Earlier in the book, she has a diary entry thinking about Nazi guards in comparison to some of the people of her own Jewish faith, people who are right around her, people like her. That's what I'll read. She's speaking to a, a friend of hers named Klaus. Klaus. We shan't get anywhere with hatred, Klaus. Appearances are often so deceptive. Take one of my colleagues. I see him often in my thoughts. The most striking thing about him is his inflexible, rigid neck. He hates our persecutors with an undying hatred, presumably with good reason. But he himself is a bully. He would make a model concentration camp guard. I often watch him standing beside the camp entrance to admit his fellow hunted Jews. Never a pleasant sight. I also remember his throwing a few grubby pieces of liquors to his sobbing three-year-old across the table and saying gruffly, See, you don't get it all over your face. Thinking back, I'm sure it was more awkwardness than shyness than lack of goodwill that made him seem so curt. He simply couldn't hit the right tone. When I saw him walking about among the others with his rigid neck and imperious look and ever-present short pipe, I always thought all he needs is a whip in his hand. It would suit him to perfection. But still, I never hated him. I found him too fascinating for that. Now and then I felt terribly sorry for him. He had such an unhappy, miserable mouth, if the truth be told. The mouth of a three-year-old who's been unable to get his way with his mother. 
He himself had meanwhile passed the 30-year mark, a clever fellow, successful lawyer, one of the most able in Holland, and the father of two children. But the mouth of a dissatisfied three-year-old had been stamped on his face. There was never any real contact between him and others, and he would give such covert, hungry looks whenever other people were friendly to each other. Later, I heard a few things about him from a colleague who had known him for years. During the German invasion, he jumped into the street from a third-floor window but failed to kill himself. Later, he threw himself under a car, but again to no avail. He then spent a few months in a mental institution. It was fear, just fear. I also learned that his wife had to walk around on tiptoe in the house because he could not bear the slightest noise and then he used to storm at his terrified children. I felt such deep, deep pity for him. What sort of life was that? In the end, he hanged himself. Klaus, all I really wanted to say is this. We have so much work to do on ourselves that we shouldn't even be thinking of hating our so-called enemies. We are hurtful enough to one another as it is. And I don't really know what I mean when I say that there are bullies and bad characters among our own people, for no one is really bad deep down. I should have liked to reach out to that man with all of his fears. I should have liked to trace the source of his panic, to drive him ever deeper into himself. That's the only thing we can do, Klaus, in times like these. And you, Klaus, give a tired and despondent wave and say, but what you propose to do takes such a long time and we don't have that much time. And I reply, what you want is something people have been trying to get for the last 2,000 years and for many more thousand years before that. In fact, ever since mankind has existed on earth. And what do you think the result has been, if I may ask, you say? And I repeat with the same old passion, although I am gradually beginning to think that I'm being tiresome. It's the only thing we can do, Klaus. I see no alternative. Each of us must turn inward and destroy in himself all that he thinks he ought to destroy in others. And remember that every atom of hate we add to this world makes it still more inhospitable. In 1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. Order. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. Yeah. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice Whoa. whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the rector's cupboard. Order. Well, welcome to the rector's cupboard. This is series two, episode two. We'll be introducing our guest, Tim Fretheim, in just a few minutes. But I want to welcome here, uh, we're at Woods Distillery in North Vancouver. We have the place to ourselves. It's not even officially open, but we've already been tasting. We have. Hopefully so. no one from the BC liquor distribution people hear right. that. Or Jim Miller. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway. Um, and, uh, and so we have here, you've already heard him, Ken Bell, our cupboard master is here on the mic this Thank afternoon. You. And Allison Williams, another host, is with us this afternoon as well. Hello. Welcome, Allison. And so I thought we'd start off today because we're going to get into the concept of kind of dehumanizing. Um, and I thought we'd start off today with a story that is really familiar with anybody from Canada. Probably the, the biggest story in terms of sadness 
that really hit a note. Was it a couple of years ago now? A little over a year ago. So they, the crash that killed these mm. young guys from, uh, well, there was a woman on the bus as well that died from the Humboldt Broncos in Saskatchewan. And the uh, National Post ran an article just uh, after Christmas, basically doing a bit of a year-end thing that said, uh, this is one of the worst sentences in Canada in the last year, mm-hmm. was the sentence for the man who was driving the truck that uh, was in the accident with the bus. I just want to read to you a little bit. He got, I think it was... Eight uh, years? Eight years. Eight years in I jail. I believe. Yeah. Um, and so they were saying, you know, for running a stop sign, that is not a proper sentence. But he didn't defend himself at all. He literally just threw himself at the mercy of the courts, um, pled guilty right away and said, whatever you deem is appropriate, yeah. I'll take. And so the National Post was saying this... I, I don't even remember who wrote this column. You can look it up. But... Um, they were saying it, it, it's a sentence that doesn't really make sense. It's a sentence that's, that's based on sorrow and the feeling of victims' families mm-hmm. more than it is on law. Yeah. And I just thought it was an interesting article because this man, anytime I've seen him, I've just seen him obviously silent, mm-hmm. walking, looking very forlorn. And he obviously was trying to make his own way. His last name is Sadu. Do I have his first name there? I don't know. We'll see if we can find it. But... Um, uh, and so the, the article was just saying, I could ask you guys, I could ask all of you here at the mics, have you ever run a stop sign? Unintentionally? Uh, yes. Oh, unintentionally. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, you have. I have too. And when I ran a stop sign one time a number of years ago and hit somebody mm. and totaled my car and there were two people in that car and could have, could have um, really hurt somebody could have killed that was them. your little red car wasn't it that was a honda civic with um a, a giant helium red balloon in the back because it was that's right Jen and I, I remember anniversary that. the next day the balloon was fine but nobody was hurt yeah uh they did down the road try to sue me but it didn't it didn't go anywhere but this guy ran a stop sign and what was it 16 people mm-hmm. were killed um oh thanks allison it's jazz karat or i'm probably saying it wrong jazz karat singh sidhu is the name of the a uh, young man who was driving the truck. Let me read what happened. Yeah. Uh, the tarp that was covering his load had come loose. He stopped and retied it, and 15 minutes later, the tarp loosened again. He was distracted by the flapping fabric in his side mirror, and he ran a stop sign. A bus carrying the Humboldt Broncos junior hockey team T-boned the truck, killing 16 people on the bus and injuring 13 Sadu was uninjured but overwhelmed by the catastrophe he caused. From the moment of the collision, he did everything we ask remorseful criminal defendants to do. He cooperated with police at the scene, and in the weeks following the crash, he pleaded guilty, his first opportunity, to 16 counts of dangerous driving causing death and to 13 counts of dangerous driving causing injury. This spared family members the ordeal of a trial. He directed his lawyer to do no plea bargaining and make no recommendation on sentencing. He delivered a heartfelt apology to the families in court. So I just want to ask you, Tim's here at the mic as well. We'll introduce him later. But what do you think? I think it's it's a, it's a tragedy and um, something that that I know I've heard when when people I know have talked about um, the legal system is calling it the justice system and how there have been people who have prickled against that because there's like there, there's a lot of situations in which nothing that our courts can do 
can actually bring justice. And so I think this is the case of, of a man who, who has caused a lot of pain, a lot of grief, terrible, terrible pain for, for a lot of families, um, and did everything that was possible after the fact to try to, to take responsibility, to alleviate that. And a harsh, a harsh prison sentence is, is not going to bring what back... What does it do for no, the and, families? Well, and there were family members that, that's, that spoke up in, in his defense. Wasn't it the wife of, of one of the coaches yeah. who said, mm-hmm. he is actually the 17th victim yeah. here. Like, he will live with this for the rest of his life. Putting him behind bars for a huge amount of time does nothing to bring back husbands and children and brothers. And, and so you go, what, what is justice in yeah. this sort of in this sort of a, I mean, a place. Is part of it that trying to make sense of tragedy? I think so. And I think, I mean, the system is set up to deal with crimes, especially intentional crimes. And, and this was, to, to, to a degree, obviously a crime. It went to a criminal court. Um, but there wasn't intentionality about it. Um, it's not like there's a recidivism risk in it. Um, uh, you know, it's not like he's likely to go out and do this again. It's not sending a, a strong message to the rest of the community. You know, in case you were thinking of running a stop sign, uh, you shouldn't do that. Uh, but it, it's not, the system isn't built to deal with tragedy. We all have a gut instinct that says 16 people were killed. Someone, someone needs to pay something. something. And the system just isn't set up for, for that. And so there is... Obviously, the emotion was getting... There was one thing there that uh, the article mentions is that the judge... Uh, and I found this interesting. The judge actually got it wrong in her, in her statement saying that uh, there was five warning signs uh, approaching right. the stop sign. And in fact, there was only two. The other were just warning that there's an exit coming up. So I, I found that curious. And I think you know, maybe there's grounds for appeal on the fact that the judge actually got her recommendation wrong or information wrong But this wrong guy there. won't appeal this. Well, not based on previous behavior. It doesn't seem like what he was wanting. He may not. And that's, and, but at the same time, you're, well, well, what is, what is that justice? What is, nothing's going to bring them back. Um, It's also telling too, that in the article, they point out that there's lots of people who've been, uh, you know, it says plaster drunk, multiple, uh, killed multiple incidents, expressed no remorse, fought the charges all the way, and they get a lighter sentence. So it is curious to why this person got such a sentence. And I think it's partially just, rocked the community i mean my instinct is also oh, to wonder course. about is it a racial issue i mean the, the guy had only been driving tough, for a right? very yeah. short period of time which uh, they blamed only, him for uh, yeah. it's not really his fault that he was only driving for a short amount of time and yeah, the really training short. isn't maybe as good as it could and the be. training is and nobody is not else really paid training. any i don't think anybody else paid any price they also mentioned that that particular intersection there's been a ton of accidents right. there. The way that there's like some bushes or something, and 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 they fixed it since then. The article right, goes on to but, say they've taken the bushes down. But that, of course, there's no blame, or nobody's paying for that. That he yeah. right. So it's I, and this is the reason I ask. And we're going to be talking about some people in some really difficult and we might say dark uh, circumstances. The idea that we can take a human being, whoever that person is, and by circumstance or event or something, uh, dehumanize them. And I think to, and I certainly wouldn't want to castigate any of the families who've lost loved ones. I can't imagine what that would be like. I have a, a friend actually who had a, a son die in a car accident just last year. 
and it was a, a man in his 70s ran a stop sign um, out in the Fraser Valley and hit uh, my friend's son and he had his girlfriend with him and they both died. Uh, the, the, the guy died, my friend's son died at the scene basically and the, his girlfriend, common law wife, had died you know, days later. Mm-hmm. And I try to be compassionate because the, the, the kind of court thing is coming up for it and my sense is, I don't want to speak improperly, but my sense is that there are some people connected who want to see this guy pay, mm-hmm. um, get prison time, or get... My understanding of it is it's a 70-something-year-old man who ran a stop sign. Yeah. Something like that. Well... And I so you're looking at what are the tendencies that we could... To have to take someone... I hope that monster gets some time. Oh, you know? yeah. You definitely... You, you... I think, particularly when you have people that are experiencing have experienced tragedy and are and are experiencing grief that they're they're grasping at something that they're hoping will help and they're hoping that feeling like somebody is that there that there is some sort of check and balance for their loved one's life or something like that 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 means something and that there that will give them like an alleviation from from the pain um but i mean ultimately our our courts aren't set up to make victims feel better. Well, that was the question I had was victim impact statements. Can you have a degree yeah. in criminology? Yeah. Uh, I think victim what? impact statements from what I hear. Sorry. Yeah. That no, was yeah. He has for quite some time. Yeah. Ooh. And, Congratulations. Um, actually, your birthday's coming up soon, isn't it? No. What is that? Um, anyway, the uh, uh, victim impact statements. Yeah. Uh, one of the things this article was mentioning was that victim impact statements... Uh, the sentencing shouldn't actually be based on that. That that a sentence isn't supposed to carry the grief of a family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, hearing the court hearing things is something that's important, but actually the sentence isn't supposed to take into account really. Well, and I would but it does. That, and that I would think emotion. that that in in particular cases where you have um, defendants who are uh, pursuing a, a not guilty charge, who are not showing any level of remorse or regret or responsibility that those sorts of things can be useful to make sure that that person hears the effect, that the court hears the effect. But, but in this particular case, the defendant is going saying, I know what I've done. I feel that weight. I feel that responsibility. I mean, I would say that I don't have a problem with, with giving grieving families a place where they feel that they can actually come before an official uh, government body and state the pain and the impact that they're in. Um, but I don't think that necessarily that was was needed for the trial. Yeah, for and, and in, in, this, in this instance. Yeah, and in this case, there was it, well, it's not done during the trial. It's done during the sentencing phase. So it has nothing to do with guilt or innocence. It's, Thank it's you, only criminology the, major man. The uh, uh, sentencing phase, and in this case, there were ninety victim impact statements. Oh, I didn't know that. Like, it's one thing to have a hand, two, three, four, which in a lot of crimes, it's, you know, someone is assaulted, the person, the victim stands up and maybe their husband or wife or kid uh, maybe says, this is how it has impacted me. But how is it not possible for 90 people getting up telling you how much grief they feel about their loved one? How is that not going to affect the the judge? And the, the crime is still is still committed. Like, I understand what the justice system is trying to do there. It's trying to give a voice to say this is a, they're wanting to be, make it a justice 
system. So people have a sense instead of, of legal. Ju- yes. Instead of legal. The intent there is good, but I think it I think what it can do the, is what we're going to be talking about in a minute is it ends up in many cases dehumanizing uh, even in this point, in, in, in the case, the, the, the person who's committed the act. And as you mentioned earlier, Alison, there were some people who did stand up and say, well, we think this person is a victim too. Like, we don't want this person to be punished, but that's just the reality that's going to like, happen. That's a good note for us, Dan. I'll read a little at the end of the, I don't know if it's the end of the column, but I think it is, um, drawing Sidhu and what he had done. A devastated defendant, believing he deserved terrible punishment, said nothing in his defense but placed himself at the mercy of the court. There's an interesting word for us, mercy. Um, In response, the court skewed towards vengeance. So what we're going to talk about today is dehumanization, and somehow I want to consider its opposite, which I suppose would be humanization. How we take people who have been dehumanized by themselves or by others and consider them again as people. Uh, And so we're pleased to do that. We're going to do the tasting. We're going to welcome, again, well, he's at the mic. Ken Bell is at the mic, our, our, um, our rector's cupboard master. And I see that our other Ken has entered the room. And so Ooh, Ken, Ken, Ken gonna, Best, Ken Ken. he's going to come over and take, take, share my mic or take over yeah, my but, mic. But take over mine for a minute and do the tasting, because I've tasted this, and then we'll do some. So you've got to squeeze in this way. And, but ladies and gentlemen, welcome Ken Bell, our cupboard master. Well, thank you very much, and it is, and Tim, welcome. It is great to uh, to be here at the Woods Distillery uh, in a sort of uh, industrial area of North Vancouver. There's a couple of other distilleries and breweries around here, and the Woods has been open for a couple years now, and uh, we've done events here before. They make a variety of liquors, uh, including uh, they make limoncello, which is an amazing limoncello. They make gin. They make amaro. Uh, but what we are tasting today is a Nacino. So, Ken, we're going to get you some. Now, Nacino is an old Italian liqueur. You don't often even get it, apparently, in the stores or anything. People just make like it grandmas themselves. And yeah, grandmas yeah. and grandpas make it in their basement. Oh, yeah. uh, okay. And what it's made out of this is... This one's safe. Is, yes. yes. It's, it's, that's it's not made, where this came from. Its main no. thing is, is walnut. And this is a black walnut, but they pick it when the walnut is green. So they pick it uh, usually around the summer solstice. And so that's when they go and they dress in fairy garb and stuff like that. Uh, No, I'm just kidding about that part. No, that part's Uh, not real. Apparently it used to be there was like a lot of folklore around it. There's a lot of folklore. But the reason they pick it then is because the shell hasn't formed around the walnut yet. Mm -hmm. And also because uh, it stops the the nasty little squirrels from getting their food supply. Because the squirrels wait Mm. until the walnut's ripe. Uh, what the Italians and French decided to do is we're going to take this product before it's ripe and we're going to turn it into booze. And so ingenious. it <laughs> is ingenious. And so the folks uh, here uh, went up to the Naramata bench in the interior of BC where there's usually wine and they picked the gr- still green black walnuts and inside is like a jelly-like substance and they macerated it for about five months on their liquor that they use as a base and then they add other botanicals mm. like uh, coffee and orange peel and nutmeg and cinnamon, a little star anise to finish it off. It's and very have, wintry. Yeah, it's what do you taste like Christmas? What do you taste? It does. It does taste yeah. like Christmas. It tastes We're like a little Christmas. post-Christmas. Yeah. It's really sweet, but I, I very much like it as a sipping thing. I also think that's why my husband likes it in yeah. particular because it, it's really it's sweet. It's really good. Yeah. 
With the exception of <laughs> almond milk, I don't know that I've ever had any other nut-based beverage. Oh, oh interesting. Well, yeah. here you go. Here we are. <laughs> but it is. It no, is it's a great it alternative. Nice. What, do you, what, do you, what does our guest, Tim, think? Yeah. Have you ever had Nachino before? Never. So this is your first experience. And, and what, are, what are your thoughts on it? Uh, well, it tastes very good. It does taste like Christmas. It does. <laughs> and it goes down very easily. Yeah, a little, little confession. Tim's mm-hmm. already on his second sip. Of, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so anyways, uh, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Tim, we welcome you. I'm going to have Todd introduce you a little bit because you guys have met uh, before. And so I'm going to turn it back over to you guys. And I will chime in in the conversation when I feel I have something to say. Thank you, Ken. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Cupboard Master. This is a fantastic drink. I'm drinking it off on the side. It is. It's really good. Keith is consuming an awful lot of it. Okay, <laughs> I, I, big, big I do feel face. I would be remiss be if, I, home, if I if I yeah, that's fine. Um, These are mine. If I didn't mention that their gin is absurdly good, I exclusively drink it now. It's so good. But I know we're not drinking that, but I kind of want to. Um, this is lovely as well. I think though. they've got some. I can see some. I know. I, I might that. be grabbing some of that a little bit later. So, well, we want to welcome Tim Fredheim. Tim. Tim and I met, oh, it's somewhere between 13 and 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Tim is the now retired chaplain of the Forensic Psychiatric Hospital, Hospital. Mm. on Colony Farms, which yeah. is outside of Vancouver. And this is a place where, so it's psychiatric care, effectively. And it's a place where people may be sent mm-hmm. who have been deemed not criminally responsible. I think in your paper you had the actual name, not yeah. criminally responsible mm-hmm. due to... A mental disorder. A mental. Mm-hmm. Do they still use that term? Yeah. Wow. So it hasn't, that sounds kind of old. MCRMD. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, the, and, and so we're looking at it. Uh, and Tim and I met. So welcome, Tim. Tim has been a minister. He's written stuff like we're reading today. He's started churches. And then for 20-some years... 26. 26 years was in the chaplaincy role um, at this uh, psychiatric hospital. Mm. And so Tim and I met uh, through a common friend. And I might tell you a little bit about that story. It was a friend of mine that I met through church work who uh, had already lived at uh, Colony Farms for some time. And then in my experience with him would check himself in Mm. a few times. And on one of those occasions... I went and met the chaplain, and I remember, Tim, you um, were a little leery at first of another minister coming in, even though you'd been a minister yourself, mm-hmm. <laughs> or maybe that's why, because I remember you said to me, and, and then we became pretty fast friends, and, and I remember you said to me, because I could pick up on that leeriness, mm-hmm. I don't know if I identified it or something, and you said, well, uh, a lot of times when religious people come in, pastors and such, it tends to make things worse, not better. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. It's not that you didn't know what to expect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so we're welcoming Tim here uh, this afternoon, and we thank you so much for taking the time to be here. And uh, we've got lots to talk about. So, Tim, I thought maybe you could just give us a little bit of your story. Sure. Um, how you wound up there, um, and any of your thoughts to introduce as we go along. Go ahead. Thank you, Todd, and everybody here at the table. A, fa- a really good discussion right off the bat about the driver, and, and, and it actually really introduces the complexities of deciding uh, on matters of justice. And, mm-hmm. and, and we're going to actually get into, at one point, you want to talk about victims versus yes. the defendants. And, yes. and so we've got a few things to say there. But anyway, Allison, great thoughts to get us oh, going. Thank you. Thank you. I'll tell you really briefly, um, I graduated from seminary in 1975. 
I graduated from North Park Seminary in Chicago. My first huh. church was in a rural church. You in Canadian Maine. or American? I'm, an, I'm both now. Mm. Okay, so. Yes. Okay. <laughs> At that time, okay. I was. We didn't check any of that. No. no. <laughs> Thank goodness. Oh. Am I still on? Rick, you're good? <laughs> Rick's American as well. Oh. Yeah, has there a couple political views. <laughs> <laughs> that we all do, though. Uh, the impeachment trial is going on as we speak, but continue. <laughs> go back to Chicago to seminary. Well, um, and I won't dwell too much because it was a pretty normal experience. I, I graduated. The only church that ever called me was a little rural church in Minnedosa, Manitoba, which I loved. I was single. I had 25 mothers and uh, never lacked for two places to go for lunch mm -hmm. at the same time. Um, yeah. you know, it was great. How long did you serve there? Uh, six and a half okay. years. And I got married halfway through. Okay. And that created, you know. But then we moved and we went to Creston, British Columbia, to Erickson, which is a little, it's a suburb. Like smaller than Creston? Wow. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But a Creston is community. Small. And uh, <laughs> that was a great experience. And then um, uh, the third, in 1988, we moved to Vancouver. And it was my dream and hope to plant the world's best church. <laughs> and uh, the dream lasted for two years. Um, and as I like to say, the, plant, uh, the church plant only grew two feet tall. Hmm. And um, to s I had to, they, the way it was working, and I, I can admit it now, there was never a, a chance that this church was, would ever become hmm. a church. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my superintendents, the superintendent said, you're running a rescue mission, not a church. Mm -hmm. um, which It's arguably a more laudable was it, was it close to the downtown east side or no? Oh, no, no, no. Okay. It, was in, it was in Coquitlam. Okay. But you'd be surprised how, you know, we, we, we were getting a carpet change and the carpet layer, his wife heard about us and so she came and they're in the middle mm -hmm. of a separation, divorce kind of thing. And, mm -hmm. and so that's how we just picked up people. And they were mostly people who loved to come Thursday nights to groups, and, uh, but Sunday morning they were sleeping. Oh. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds not bad. Yeah. <laughs> wait, wait a minute. So tell me about the other part than that the didn't Thursday work. group yeah. part. <laughs> yeah. So you finished that. Well, I have to which tell is you a bit of thing. a sorrow. While I started, I had to find another job. So I, I got a job at Reimer Express Trucking Company, loading and unloading trucks, and I became a teamster. Oh. So. Um, so be careful, Ken. Mm. Well, I'm re, you know member in good standing. Whatever you're. You are. Yeah, okay. I mean, I, I, when you retire, of yeah. course. But um, I was a terrible uh, teamster, to be totally honest, and thank goodness God only allowed me to work there for two years. But it really, I'll, you know, I'll just tell you. So there I was, the church was going, and then <laughs> it was the week that was for me. On this Sunday, the guy who gave the most money to keep us going said, look, I'm going away for three months. I hope there's a church when I come back. I smiled, I said, yeah. As soon as he walked out the door, I turned to the chairman. And I said, uh, we should plan to close up the books this week because wow. we don't have any money. Mm -hmm. And then um, so we, we did that. And then during that week, I thought I applied for a job. And again, um, I didn't hear anything. So I phoned the guy and he said, oh, he said, no. He said, you came in third. And I said, Oh, well, I mean, at least I didn't come in fourth. And he said, yeah, we well, only the had fourth, three. The fourth yeah. guy dropped <laughs> out. <laughs> and um, uh, so that, that was, and then what happened was I was, I, I was very angry hmm. at everybody. How could this happen to me? And, and I thought, 
I have no skills. I have, mm. what am I going to do? You know, a wife, three kids, and so on. Uh. And, um, and then I realized, wait a minute, I've got my union card. And uh, so that Friday I went down and they said, yeah, come back Monday and you sign in. And so mm -hmm. Monday I was on the 5.30 a.m. bus, the 151 downtown transfer to Kingsway. And uh, that's, that was the next part of my life. For two years I worked out of the hall, as they called it. And that, that's another long story. So you have time in between oh. being a minister at a church and, and working at the psychiatric oh, hospital. Yeah. And yeah, this yeah. is the time in between. Yes. Uh, from 1988 to 1992 was that. So then you start in 92. At right. And but let me go back a second because yeah. I want to just, t um, before I retired, I sat down and I said, what were the foundational events of my life? When you retire, you want to st start reviewing your right. life, right? Right. Getting the memoir ready. Exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and I wanted to share this today because it, it ties in with my, my mm -hmm. journey. The first thing was my seminary experience. I loved going to seminary. I loved the study, the research, um, and that laid the foundation for really mm -hmm. uh, that continues today. Now, the second one may surprise you, but the man who sold us our house in 1988, Jim, was a recovering alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And he was interested in improving his spirituality. And so I said, sure, let's, let's get together. And, and he, was, he joined our group. And so I said, well, Jim, let's, we'll start, we'll read, and I, whatever, we're going to read the Bible. And he came and he said, I got to tell you, Tim, I get dyslexia when I read the Bible. Hmm. And I go, oh, well, what do you want to read? Well, he said, uh, can we read uh, AA, like the 12 steps? I said, sure. Shorter. <laughs> <laughs> I knew very little. Mm -hmm. However, the, you know, seminaries number one, Jim connecting with him. Oh, and Jim took me to meetings. He took me to small groups, and most of all, he shared his life with me. Mm. And that became. And he also brought me in contact with a recovery house in our neighborhood. And um, it was a it was a different world, mm. one that I would never have entered. Hmm, that's mm -hmm. interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because well, when I first met you, I assumed that you kind of had this vocational call to those, like the ultra-needy or those who are, you know, but so to hear this story is really yeah. interesting. No, it's us. funny, Todd. I, I, you know, at AA meetings, I'd have, if, if I said anything, I said, hi, my name's Tim, and I'm not an alcoholic. Right. It's an unusual answer for <laughs> that group. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I'll tell you what, and I, I really recommend this. I was, I, like, I love their spirituality. I know that it may not be Christian, but there's a reason for that. And if you can go with that and accept it, uh, the 12 steps I try to practice myself. And um, the rigorous honesty that they practice. And it was Jim who was doing it. Um, I I'd actually never met this. I'd never seen it in church. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been to meetings myself with, okay. not because I'm an alcoholic, yeah. which I'm not, but, the, but because going with people that, you know, from when I was a pastor and, and definitely see the same thing. And I think most people who are familiar with AA would be able to say, like, the, the radical acceptance and such. Mm -hmm. that, yeah. So I'm interested in that in now bringing you to um, Colony Farms. That's right. That well, this, these, this is a place that would be considered by many. I mean, most people listening probably, we don't think about these places existing. Um, I mean, prison jails are one thing, but uh, it seems even worse, I think, to a lot of people where you'd be sent 
because of a psychiatric illness mm-hmm. that some had something to do with something terrible that you did. I mean, it's not something that most of us are thinking, I wonder if those people are okay. Well, right? and I think that there's so much, there's so much fear and so much uncertainty around um, for, for people who, who don't have experience with, with those who, who have um, mental health struggles. And there, there's an element of unpredictability that I think the general population, if that's the best way to put it, uh, like it, it scares them because they're, they're not sure how to respond. Like there, there isn't those kind of like societal norms that they can count on people reacting in certain ways or responding in certain ways. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think it scares them a well, lot. Yeah. It's the whole stigma around mental illness in society period, mm-hmm. which is, you know, if you have a, if you have an illness that, uh, you know, is cancer or some kind of viral infection that that's not your fault. Um, and yet the thought seems to be that if you're suffering from a mental illness, it's something that you contributed to mm-hmm. in some way, uh, something that you didn't do or something that someone close to you did to you, um, which is a incorrect way of thinking about it. Yeah. But it's hard because we don't have these categories yet. I mean, I mm-hmm. think hopefully we're progressing in some ways in, in our culture, but that sense somebody does something terrible or heinous and of course your thoughts are going to the victims, which they well should. Uh, but if we're talking about humanization and dehumanization, that question of, well, how do we care for the person who has done that? You, and so in, Tim, in your paper that, that we read before um, today, uh, this is a paper you wrote a number of years ago on hospitality and the stranger from the context of this forensic hospital, yeah. psychiatric hospital, um, and from your pastoral background as well and biblical background and you bring up something in the paper that I thought was really interesting in the context of that kind of care and it's called in some scriptural understanding the mark of Cain like when you know Cain kills Abel and then the punishment that God puts on him which is kind of to cut him off and there's this line that I kept resonating with because I've been out to the, the psychiatric hospital and just seeing the people who were there and Cain's cry kind of existing over that, where Cain says, my punishment is more than I can bear. Mm-hmm. In other words, I am cut off from people now. Yeah. And you mentioned, I think, really thoughtfully in the paper that basically the only people around are either other people who've done heinous things or most specifically people who are being paid to be there. Right. Um, and so in some ways, we consider these places to be God-forsaken places. And yet you were there for 26 years obviously filled with some other different kind of sense than this is just a terrible place. Oh, yeah. Tell us what was better than terrible there. Uh, well, when you get in there and um, you have to appreciate the fact that people do um, bad things. Mm-hmm. And um, that's, we just talked about, we, we began doing it. Um, and I'll, I'll just just backtrack. Yeah. So the forensic hospitals, it's, um, it is the provincial hospital. It's the only one. Mm. And it's a 200-bed facility for persons living with a mental illness in conflict with the law. Okay. So that helps me. I did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you go to court, you're convicted of whatever the crime is, and then they'll ask for a psychiatric evaluation. And um, so then what, if the outcome, the judge goes, no, yeah, you were under your mental illness right. interfered with your thinking. So now we're putting you under the care of the director of the forensic hospital. So, and, and the reason they say it is not criminally responsible. 
okay? Mm -hmm. So if you go to jail, you're criminally responsible. Right. It goes down on your record. Not criminally responsible means it's not on your record. Right. Mm. However, they do keep track of you. Right. And there's, that's a, but without getting into that. So um, let me just tell you a little story. My very first day, very mm. first day, and um, my wife dropped me off, wished me good luck, and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Have a nice day. <laughs> and I walked up, and, and there was six patients who were standing at the door. And I said, uh, they said, oh, hi, who are you? And I said, oh, I'm Tim, I'm the new chaplain here. And they go, oh, great, great, great. And one guy said to me, oh, you should meet my son. He's the vice admiral of the British Navy. Mm -hmm. And I went, hmm. okay. Wow, okay. <laughs> and the what second, a coincidence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the second guy said, Ah, you don't believe him. He's crazy. And uh, then the first guy says to him, crazy? You think you're God? And he said, you're crazy. And then the second guy goes, I am God, and you're all going to hell. Wow. And That's before lunch. That was before As coffee. You're walking in. <laughs> and I went, wow, okay. Uh, so then I walked in, and I was thinking to myself, now what do I do? Mm -hmm. I had 10 weeks out of a, a hospital chaplaincy course and they're supposed to train you to be a minister and the only thing I could remember was they said go to the desk and I tell the nurse you're Tim and who, who you're here to visit so I right. went up the stairs to the third floor it was what they called the remand these are people who are still their cases are still right. oh pending yeah. yes mm -hmm. yeah and this is a, a moment really that I never forgot because uh, as I came to the desk and uh, there was a woman seated and she was writing and I leaned over and I smiled and I said hi um, I just wanted to introduce myself I'm the new chaplain and she just kept writing she said oh and I said <laughs> yes well I, I just wanted to introduce myself and and let you know and she kept writing and she said well uh, I'm really um, not in the habit of inviting patients to chapel services and I didn't even think about this oh, I just yeah. went Oh, well, that's okay. I said, that's about fourth on the list. I said, really, I, I just want to get to know the guys. And she actually just put her pen down, and she looked up at me, and she said, do you want to go for a cigarette with me right now? No, I don't smoke. Hmm. And in those days, they had smoking rooms right. on the floor, right? But her name was Rachel. And so Rachel was astonished because she thought my role was simply to be Mm. Right. To run services. Right. right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So mm -hmm. we sat down, and that was, she became my, my friend. What would happen is this. Remember, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> but Rachel will start to explain to me what's going on. With a patient or something. Exactly. Okay. Mm. So so-and-so is this. And, the, yeah. and then the patients would see this, you know, the smoking going on because it's all glass windowed, right? You could see. And so they'd come in and they'd say, you know, can I get a hit on that before you, you know, and everything like this? And, and then they'd come in and they, because they wanted to talk. And I just sat and listened and, and Rachel would start talking to them. And um, we became known as good cop, bad cop. Who was the good cop? I was the you good cop. cop. <laughs> and then she introduced me to the, you know, the person in charge of the ward who became, she liked me. And then I met the psychologist and he was interested, and all these people were curious. Mm -hmm. And so, but, but that, was, that was really the first hour of my first day. And, wow. and then what I did was I went, okay, well, what, what do I do for the rest of the day? And I went, I guess I go to the next ward. In, in your paper, you actually have, I don't know, you're probably gonna yeah. get to this, that you have a name for that. 
intentionally loitering. Intentional loitering, yeah. yeah, that <laughs> yeah. You, um, mm-hmm. But that brings up, you know, the, 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 uh, we talk about humanization and dehumanization, like what you're there to accomplish. Also in the paper, I think a psychologist said to you... Yeah, that stood out to me You a remember lot. that too? Yeah. You, go, you get to um, it. Sorry, I did, I did underline it. The psychologist it. said to you that uh, their job... Was to stabilize. ...was, was yeah. to help yes. them kind of see what they'd done. And your job was to get them to live the rest of their lives with that, with that knowledge. Yeah. And so that loitering is just to be with them, not to try to bring them anywhere, right? Um, Allison, you said it stood out to you? Yeah, because you said early in my job as a chaplain, a psychologist told me my job is to get patients stabilized to the point that they understand what they have done. Your job is to help them learn how to live with that for the rest of their lives. And I just, I remember reading when I read your paper for the first time, like actually just stopping at that point and going, well, that's a really, um, that's a, that's a heavy call. Um, Like it's worthwhile, but that is, that's quite a thing to, to strive to accomplish with people. Um, And I just found that that Mm -hmm. was, yeah, it was beautiful. I was going to say, like Tim sort of going picking up on that you know um what would you say about like i think that uh for people who have committed crimes or you know and there is some level of awareness of what they've done and a sense that Mm -hmm. i wish i hadn't i wish i could make other choices what about the people that aren't expressing that what about the the the, no remorse aren't, aren't expressing remorse or um aren't don't have an awareness of what they've done or how they've affected another person. Can you talk a little bit about those people and what you extended to them or what you, would, yeah. what you think others could extend? Well, uh, to be honest, yeah. most people didn't talk about right. remorse okay. because it's right. a legal matter, mm-hmm. so they're very careful about what they say. Also they were very careful about revealing their crime mm. to their fellow inmates. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, and yep, uh, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. But some of it is extremely high security. Like when I was out mm-hmm. there, it's people who oh, yeah. killed people. Yeah, because yeah. that's, that, that, that's a very broken situation, you know, to um, have people outside living their lives sort of in society who have been impacted by this person oh, yeah. that you're dealing with, and there's not an expression of remorse from them. Um, and then the people who are out in the community, they're sort of dealing with the consequences of these experiences. Right. So that's, it, that's a lot of weight to hold. Ken, it, it's a tricky issue because mm-hmm. they discourage people from sending letters to the victims mm-hmm. or things like that. Mm-hmm. So right, mm-hmm. of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. And a, a lot of these, there's not a, it's just, okay, don't, just don't yeah. hurt them. Mm-hmm. Just leave them. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I would be more with one, this side, I rarely dealt mm-hmm. with the families mm-hmm. or the victims. Right. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. That, so uh, let me, you guys maybe know this, it'll take a couple minutes to, to go through this. The occasion for uh, my oh, yes. um, meeting Tim, and that was a friend, um, I'll call him Dave, uh, who came to an evening service that I was doing when I worked at a church. And uh, it was this failure of an evening service in many ways. I thought it would be great. and. And Dave, I'll get, remember to say that name, uh, came one night and there were like five other people, the people who were like running it, you know, doing sound and stuff, and Dave. 
And then, and so I'm depressed. I'm at a place where I'm thinking there's no future vocationally for me, whatever. This is just feeling, uh, and um, producer Rick had helped like build a whole stage and, and stuff for this service. It looked great. There were some really good things about it, but I thought, oh, there should be more people. And so this guy who I hadn't met from the community, he just wandered in um, and participate or came to the service. And then afterwards, I went down to like the basement offices and he followed me, and it was quite fairly late at night. It was like dark, I was probably in the fall. Um, and this Dave followed me down and said, "Hey, can I talk to you?" And sound, like sounded like you know people are just off, like like something's wrong, mm-hmm. wrong with that person who's addressing me. Yeah. And so I was a little nervous already, like a little bit scared. Um, but I did the whole thing, like, "Well, God, you're with me, and I have to be fully present for this person." And <laughs> and so for some reason, I went into this little side room, which was a counting room at the church, and it was where they counted the offering and stuff. And and it was really narrow. And I remember my knees were almost touching his. Hmm. And I'm like, "Well, it's so good to meet." He's like, "I want to talk to you for a few minutes, can I?" So that's why we went in there. And I just wanted to get it over with, but still be present, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, "Sure, nice to meet you." I mean, he's like, "I love the service. It was so great." And I'm like, oh, great. And in my head, I'm thinking, like, you know, there weren't that many people. And, and he's like, I just really wanted to say it was great. I want to keep coming back. Like, when you do it again, I'll be back. And, and I said, oh, good, good, good. And, wh- you know, who are you? Tell me about yourself or whatever. And he skipped all the formalities and went and said, um, I think there's something you should know about me, which is a little weird, <laughs> right, at the first time. Okay. And I'm like, okay. And I'm trying to be, the, you know, the pastor. I'm like, sure. He's like, it's a little bit hard to hear. It just keeps going down the runway, right? And, and I said, that's okay. Like, I, you know, go ahead and tell me. I'll, uh, and he goes, he said, well, I think I'm Jesus. And, yeah, it was kind of quiet. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm like, oh. I said, are you okay? Are you okay? He says, is that really upsetting to you? I said, well, not, not really. I said, are you okay if I don't think that you're Jesus? And he's like, yeah, that's fine. You don't need to think I that think I am. That's a really I, good response. <laughs> but I think that I am. I think that's, that's actually a really good response. Yeah, yeah I was so I was yeah. so kind of down and like self-centered, mm-hmm. thinking like the service sucked and there's but this. Jesus is approved of it. Yeah, I literally right. thought like <laughs> Jesus took you the into guy a small who thinks room he's said, Jesus liked it and that's yeah. good enough. So I was at that church for some time. He kept coming. He came to Sunday morning services. Came to these evening services, and. I left that church and, and then became a senior minister in another church. He's one of the only people that followed mm-hmm. me, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And he's just so, like, takes so much time and so much energy. And then I heard about his story. Mm-hmm. And then I heard that he had spent time at the hospital where you worked. And by this point, and he had court-ordered medication <coughs> and the rest and had dealt with the kinds of things you talk about. By this time, if he was hearing voices, then they were really, really intense and strong, he would actually check himself in mm-hmm. to, the, to the hospital at times, or at least that's what he told me. Mm-hmm. But he must have, because he was living in yeah. the community. Yeah. And that's when I met you. One time I went out to visit him out there. Mm-hmm. He'd asked if I could visit him. And uh, I remember meeting you. Now, his story doesn't end well. No. He, um, you were so gracious, Tim. Uh, we struck up a friendship. I remember you involved me in a meeting with professionals, doctors, mm-hmm psychiatrists and otherwise and they were really leery of a pastor's presence there but you kind of said to them don't worry he's not crazy um actually you know thinks some intelligent things and we were trying to put together a care plan for for this guy for dave and he he then kept attending the church and um you know we had to do all kinds of things at the church as well most of which he wouldn't be aware of Mm. that people caring for him we didn't want him to feel watched but we had to obviously monitor and stuff. And, 
And anyway, uh, he, the, the court order uh, ended on his medication. Mm. And he hated his meds because they, he put on weight on them and stuff, and he was always concerned about mm. how he looked. And, mm-hmm. and uh, so he came to me one day in my office, and he said, um, and he had a strong faith. Um, so it's weird. You can think you're Jesus, but trust in Jesus at the same. No, I, exactly right. Like if you, you play those kinds of things, but he definitely had a strong faith, but he had a, a mental illness at the same time. And he came to my office one day and he said, uh, "I'm healed. God's healed me, and I don't need the meds anymore." And he wanted my affirmation on that. And I remember saying to him, "Dave," uh, and he so he said it, almost like a victory, right? Mm-hmm. And and I'm. I am praying. I'm going like, what do I say? What do I? And, and I said, this is year, after years and years of knowing him. And I said, Dave, I, I don't know about the medication thing. Because he said, I, I'm healed and I don't need my meds anymore. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I know you're being healed. And I can speak to some things about spirituality, but I can't speak to things about medication. And so I would think you need to go talk to a doctor and, and get mm-hmm. their recommendations on to... Even though we were friends, and we were friends, this was deeply offensive to him, and, and he was hurt mm-hmm. by it. And he stopped coming to the church. Uh-huh. And he didn't know anything about denominations or anything. So he, went, he wound up going in the same community of all places to the Mormon church, to Latter-day Saints. And he, was, he, didn't, he didn't know what to do with rules, any kind of rule, right? And so I ran into him. He'd been going to the Mormon church for some time, and he, he came up to me and he said, it's crazy. Like, Do you know they don't even let you drink coffee? <laughs> and like they, you know, and so after a while he came back to our church, but he was still battling this medication thing. Hmm. And then the week between Christmas and New Year's one year, um, I don't know, it's eight, ten years ago, mm-hmm. he, uh, he called a couple of the ministers at the church, myself included. We were, both, we were both away. There were some other emergency things that he didn't call. And then he... Um, drove onto the Lionsgate Bridge, and he, hmm. he jumped off oh, the Lionsgate terrible. Bridge. Yeah. And that was the end. I, I worked with his parents, who they were grieving, but they, they were able to tell me that their grief had been a long time. Mm-hmm. And in my own Christian spirituality, I, I'm on the Lionsgate Bridge a lot, ride my bike across the bridge a lot. I think of Dave mm-hmm. a lot you when must. I'm riding over yeah. there. Wow. And I think of what he must have been feeling. This mm. sounds kind of dark or depressing. Yeah in between the bridge and the water. Oh. And I called you, Tim, sometime after. Because I, I wasn't blaming myself, do you know what I mean? Like, I, I know, know enough about, like, have told people don't do that in this kind of circumstance. But I was still really feeling an emotion. I called you, and I said, have you heard? And, of course, you had heard. And you said to me, you said, Todd, his loneliness was something that couldn't be penetrated. You could have had him over every day, with your family, every but his lo- and so what I thought of when I pictured him then, or when I prayed about this in between place for when he when he did take his own life, is my con- my view of Jesus Christ that Christ is the only one who's ever been truly alone, mm. and that even my friend there, even in that moment, he was known, mm. and so I I still think of him often, and mm. and I'm grateful for the connection that it's made. Yeah. But that was just one story. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you were encountering Every many day, mm-hmm. many. Yeah. Well, the great thing is, and I, I, I hate to say this, but yours is probably, now, and I'm just hearing this part mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. I, I never knew most of it. Yeah. Cause, but 
there was another minister down in White Rock who showed care for one of our guys. Mm. And it, it, you're right. It's so, they're so, they take up a lot of time and energy. And um, that's why in a normal church, it's Can't very hard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. You actually wrote a letter to our church one time. Yes, it did. certainly wasn't just me. It was the whole community that really embraced Dave. I, and, and they, you know, people knew. And he would do crazy things, right? Like, and say nutty things in the middle of a service and do. But the community didn't seem put off by it. It was a really interesting kind of, and, and we miss him. I was impressed by your church. Yeah, it was. Uh, they was showed great compassion and yeah. care and love. And um, you have a story of someone named Matthew. I don't know if that's the real name or whatever. Uh, doesn't matter. Yeah, do you uh, do you remember that story from your paper? Yeah, yeah. Tell well, us a bit about that if you do remember. Well, Matt had been in the hospital before, and uh, <clears throat> it was getting closer to my retirement now, or maybe I was just getting less energetic, <clears throat> whatever it was. But it was Monday, and my my routine. <coughs> oh, 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 sorry. Yep. Nothing See, spills. Actual, actual tasting. Okay. Yeah, nothing in there. <laughs> Somebody get some more drink. Yeah. Keep going. My normal routine from 26 years before is starting on the remand ward. And so mm -hmm. I went down there, and, and uh, he came up to me, and he greeted me. Bro, hey, how's it going? And Oh, yeah, bro. I remember that. I couldn't <laughs> put a name to him. And he was a little annoyed with me for not remembering, <laughs> right? I said, oh, just tell me your name. And so he did. And so, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I said, I remember your face. And so we started just chatting and everything. And, and, um, and then, like everything, I mean, it's coffee time. And, and so then it's coffee's over. And, uh, and so he said, um, I love you, bro. Do you love me? And for some reason, it annoyed me. <laughs> <laughs> It usually annoys me if people ask was me that it, was question. Was it the bro too. part? No, uh, that's why. <laughs> but I said to him, uh, well, it was, it was kind of like boundaries, okay? Right. Mm -hmm. And I said, uh, you know, I love my wife and I like you. Mm. No, no, you, no. That wasn't acceptable that to That wasn't acceptable. Uh -oh. Anyway, that's Monday. <laughs> but anyway, we parted. So Tuesday I came back and I saw him again and, and uh, same thing happened. We talked and then he says, uh, I love you, bro. Do you love me? And I said, well, no, I'm, you know, annoyed again. And uh, so he said the same thing, you know, and I said, no, I love, I love my wife and I like you, you know, so anyway, but it's, uh, you know, this is what I enjoyed. Yeah. I just would go down mm -hmm. and find people and we just talk. And so the third day, Wednesday, I came down and so we sat down and... This just sounds like a story from the Gospel of John. It's got to said, times. feed my sheep. Yes, on the third day he came and said... <laughs> I love you, bro. Sorry, I'm sorry me. to keep going. <laughs> no. So we got talking, and, he's, and uh, I said, and by the way, I'm a master of small talk. That's required for the you job. You must be fun at parties. I don't go to parties. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> or um, spin class. Yes. yes. Oh, my goodness. You I said to him, so where are you going to go after this? Cause, and, of course, you don't go, you don't mm -hmm. just leave, right? Mm -hmm. you, there's other places where you're going to go. And I said, so are you going to go back with your mom? And then she said, uh, he said, no, I don't think she wants me. And I said, of course she wants you. What are you saying? He said, no. And his voice changed, and he said, I don't think she wants me ever. And something chilled inside of me, and I just stopped. And I looked at him, and I said, is she still alive? Mm. And he, without missing a beat, he mm. said, just barely, bro. I beat her up pretty badly oh, this mm. time. Mm. Mm. 
And then he said, do you love me, bro? Mm. I said, yes, Matt, I love you. Mm. And uh, wow. it, it, yeah. And it was only, it was that, that's kind of a forensic thing where you suddenly go, wait a minute. And you, you get a feeling. And um, he left. You know, I mean, this is how people come and go. Right. Mm -hmm. So I came back on Thursday to do the chapel service, and I said, you know, is he here? And he, no, no, he left yesterday. So, and mm -hmm. that was... Um, wow, that's so... It's kind of like a well transiency to your job. You, you, like, you meet people in some of, like, the worst, or recovering from some of, like, the worst kind of pockets of time in their lives, but you don't necessarily... Like, you have absolutely no... Uh, like power or authority or any like you don't have a right to know how it ends you don't like yeah. th that that must be I would think that I would struggle with that as far as feeling like I was making a difference that like trying to find um the meaning in that I mean clearly I think that that, that you did but I I have a lot of admiration like there's there's a huge amount of kind of maturity and I would think based on your faith, like a trust in God, that what you're doing matters even if you don't necessarily see the ends yeah. of it. Well, just remember, this is the remand ward. That's where the transiency was. Right. So uh, just you're usually a, a person would stay at least a year. Mm. You don't come for two weeks, mm -hmm. right? Mm. So it's over that period of time between, and you can go between, I knew people one to eight years, and that's where you develop the relationship, the relationship. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you have to bring so much of your self to that position. You know, like you'd have to reflect so often on what it was that you'd experienced every day. Or I guess the other way, some days you probably just need to shut it out. But it would, you'd go away and have to reflect so much on what it was that you believed, valued, how it was you're going to choose to operate. And then go back into that situation yeah. each and every day. And, you know, when someone's asking a question like, you know, do you love me? It's almost like they're looking at that situation mm -hmm. through their lens, exactly. but your response, you're mm -hmm. looking through your own, you know, well, like w when, when you speak back yeah. to them and you have to do a lot of work to say whatever it is that you're going to say in I response. I think with that, I, I've had in my head the question as we, that, uh, <coughs> it, and for each of us, we would have to think about this and not to presume a certain way of seeing the world, spiritual, spirituality or faith or religion or whatever, but this question of where people get their worth. And I remember a friend of mine had a son who was in psychiatric care. Uh, he's been in and out of psychiatric care, nothing um, in terms of uh, criminal or non-criminal yeah. behavior, but, um, but he, it's been so severe at one point that he was in, in solitary. Mm -hmm. I don't even know what the real term is for it. The medical Seclusion. Term. Yeah, mm. um, in, in a psychiatric hospital. And nobody was even allowed to see him, not even his family. Mm. They could look on a video screen. I mean, it was and they didn't want to do it because yeah. and he you know all kinds of things where it looks you know the way he's acting is seems to be dehumanizing himself but in some ways it's the only way he can communicate mm -hmm. and and so i remember thinking at the time i hope for me it would be prayer i hope and pray and i think people who are working in these circumstances are often whether they would claim a faith or not often feel something like a call i have great regard for people who work in these places mm -hmm. professionally and, and, uh, but I was praying, I hope somebody thinks that my friend's son is made in the image of God. 
Um, and so this idea of where your worth comes from, you mentioned in your paper a man named John Swinton, and some of us have met uh, John Swinton and read a number of his books. He writes a lot about people who are facing dementia or who have severe disabilities, people that can be dehumanized for one reason or another. And I just want to read a little quote of his yeah. before we get wrapping up. He talks about people uh, being seen as if they have little worth. And he says, their illness is the reason for everything they are and do. And that, other than perhaps their families, are the only people who should care for him, these professionals, or care for them. These professionals are people who are paid to. It challenges the meaning of our personal stories and ultimately erodes our sense of humanness. And I often have in my mind, I think I may have said it even on this podcast before, is that there are no God-forsaken places and there are no God-forsaken people. Yeah. And whether you believe in God or not, like it's weird to, like how could you hold both those things? But I think you can. And so for us and for us together and for even our listeners, that question, where do people get their worth? And that concept that every single person we get to meet today or see today, that that's gift, yeah. including people who've done terrible things. And yeah. that doesn't excuse it. And so this is a sense of a hopeful call kind of moving forward. Any, anything else from well, people? Can Jim, I, you, yeah. uh, you let out, um, and by the way, I want to go back to what Allison said at the very beginning, described a pretty good profile of a, a community's response to a person with mental illness. There's fear, you know, unpredictability and, and so on. And I, I appreciate that. When I worked with them, I knew where they were. Right. So hmm. there wasn't a question. And you didn't have to like figure out how to meet their needs or mm -hmm. anything like that. Mm. You know, the grace we would feel to people even listening to this who are caring for loved ones that it yes. can be more severe. In, Mostly what I would do, and I go back to the remand ward, you'd meet these young guys who, you know, maybe 18 or 19, right? And it was always, again, over coffee, and, I, and they'd say, you know, am I going to get out of here or whatever? And, and so what I would do for many people is just say, hang on one sec, I'm going to get the nurse, because I was the go-between. Okay, the staff, mm -hmm. would, you know, mm -hmm. and then the staff would. You're a non-medical professional there. There you go. Yeah. And so then they'd come over and they'd explain it to the person. And so giving this person some knowledge and you were, all you were doing is telling them this is what's going to happen. And that was, that was good, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I, wa I want to go back to something you said about John Swinton because he is a hero of mine. Yeah, it, those who are listening and every... If you can read anything by John Swinton, read it. Exactly. It will, it will improve your way you see the world. And, and I want to go down or talk about uh, two things sort of in closing. I don't want to, because yeah. I'm getting excited now. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> but I got to say, Todd, you'd be a, a great chaplain. Uh, oh, <laughs> thank you. Just telling you. I'm uninterested in church work. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, keep going. So uh, one of the first, well, the first book I ever read on, by John Swinton, I don't know, it was his first book that he did, um, is called and I rediscovering the human. Yes. In okay, and I read it, and that really uh, deeply impressed me because if there's anything that John Swinton over and over in all of his books, we're human. Though that's the base, mm -hmm. and that has helped me. So all of our differences, I go, they're right. okay. They're okay because as far as I know, we're both still human. Okay. Yeah. And that's what ties us really? together. Mm -hmm. Now, um, one of the, and, and so when I did that, I always looked for the human in people. Mm -hmm. Not everybody can do that. 
No. And and you're talking about earlier the the humble driver, right? right. And you know when people are hurt. They're, they're, so, they're in pain. Right, so you don't want to castigate them and correct Nothing, them and say, no. you need to see this man's humanity. Of course, it's, you don't want to do that at all. No. Right. But as my role, right. that's what allowed me to do my job. And I wanted to go back to Ken. Mm. I almost brought my journal, Ken. Mm. And I, I found it, I brought it out this morning, and it's all, you know, it's dog-eared. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but um, when you talk about journaling, and I, mm -hmm. I was starting to reread the first day again. And... Uh, you know, the thing was, if I journaled every day, I would not have time to go home. I mean, right. it's like, yeah. that's what, it's like, and then uh. finally you just sort of go, okay. <laughs> now, my secret, I'm laughing now, I bicycled to work. Oh. And my Todd would be cycling. familiar with cycling and how yes. that might work out emotional <laughs> I can things. see emotional. If I still thought about Energy. work <laughs> yeah. when I was in the colony farm. Mm. Cycling and prayer. Mm -hmm. No, no, no. You just... It just ride. Out, just ride. Move the body. Move the body. Work and then, it out. And I, I, if I was thinking about it coming home, and I only did this very few times, I'm okay, well, I'm really bothered by this, because normally you go home. Anyway. Really good. And, and so just going back a little bit to John Swinton, that's uh, if I want to talk about one last thing here, because um, it comes after. It says, who are the people considered monsters oh, yeah. now? So here's... Two quick thoughts. Language is so important. Okay, mm -hmm. and this is something I, <laughs> I'm still language learning. titles. Well, let me. If I say you're tr you're crazy, right? Okay, that's that's insulting, right? Now, if I say you know what, I'm crazy. That's just that's self. Yeah. You know. mm -hmm. But when we call people monsters, and oh, I yeah. I really stopped doing this, especially because yeah. I realized I'm working, and I'll say. Um, because monsters conjure up, that's the fear mm -hmm. factor, right? And uh, well, so well. now I try to just say, a person with a mental illness, yeah. a mm -hmm. person mm -hmm. living with this, yeah. and I try mm -hmm. to caution everything. Remember, this is a person. I, mm. I remember um, one of the times I was out visiting my friend and, and then visited you afterwards. Um, I think your office had a window, or there was one right yeah. near it. And, uh, this, this, and there was kind of a garden-type area outside, or mm -hmm. like a courtyard, and somebody kept pulling themselves up to your window and like meowing like a cat. <laughs> it's like yeah. a big guy, looking yeah. like a big trucker or something. Yeah. And you, you just carried on talking to me yeah. as if this wasn't happening. And I'm like, is that his own? And you're like, oh, that's Steve or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, and yet, I mean, even that in itself has that uh, sense of we live. And those are just the extreme examples. Yeah. So for each of us, yeah. those listening as well, we are, you, you might not be at Colony Farms, but you are going to be facing these kinds of things and how, like things that, that aren't part of like how you would prefer to get through the day. And so we hope that speaking about humanizing and dehumanizing has some kind of positive impact to the call. And again, to always do so, you know, with compassion. The book that I would recommend as well, I haven't read all of Swinton's stuff, by Swinton, one of his more recent ones is called Becoming Friends of Time. And yes. so uh, if you're listening or anybody here, if you haven't uh, read Becoming Friends of Time, it's a beautiful, beautiful mm -hmm. book. So uh, we want to say thank you very much. Yes. Thank you, thank guys. Um, and thanks for coming along and being our guest. And thanks to all who participated. Cupboard master, Ken Best, who joined partway through. <laughs> Producer Rick. I was here for the drink. Keith <laughs> running, the uh, be yeah. the showrunner here. Uh, that's it for this episode. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thank, thank you. you.